0: Soul Winner by Charles Spurgeon, Conviction of Sin. Since this God-begotten spiritual life in men is a mystery beyond human comprehension, we shall address some more practical consequences of the new birth. If we dwell upon the signs following and accompanying this miraculous new birth, then these are the things we must aim to see. First, Regeneration is displayed in conviction of sin. We believe this to be an indispensable mark of the Spirit's work. One of the effects of the new life, as it enters the heart, is intense inward pain in regards to sin. However, nowadays we hear of people being healed before they have been wounded and being brought in a certainty of justification without ever having lamented their condemnation. We are very skeptical as to the value of such healings and views of justification, because this style or methodology is not practiced according to the truth. God never clothes men until he has first stripped them, nor does he make them alive through the gospel until they first are slain by the law. When you meet with people at home, there is no trace of conviction of sin. You may be quite sure they haven't been guided or managed by the Holy Spirit. For He, when He comes, will convict a world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16 verse 8 When the Spirit of the Lord breathes on us, He withers all the glory of man like the flower of grass. Then He reveals a higher and abiding glory. Do not be astonished if you find its conviction of sin to be very acute and alarming. On the other hand, do not condemn those in whom it is less intense. For so long as sin is mourned over, confessed, forsaken, and abhorred, you have evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Much of the horror and unbelief which accompanies conviction is not of the Spirit of God. It comes from Satan, or our own corrupt nature. Yet, there must be true and deep conviction of sin. This is what the preacher must labor to produce, because when this isn't felt, the new birth has not taken place. Simple faith in Jesus It is equally true that conversion may be recognized by the exhibition of a simple faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need me to speak to you about that, because you are already fully persuaded regarding this manner. Faith is the very center of the target at which you aim. Proof that a man's soul is one for Jesus is never evident until he has come to the end of himself, in his own merits, and is drawn near to Christ. Great care must be taken that this faith is exercised upon Christ for a complete salvation, and not for a part of it. A number of people think the Lord Jesus is available for the pardon of past sin, but they can trust him to keep them from destruction in the future. They trust for years past, but not for years to come. Since Christ's work of salvation is never divided into parts like this in Scripture, either he bore all our sins or none of them. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7 verse 25. He either saves us once for all, or not at all. His death can never be repeated, and so it must have made atonement for both the past and future sin of a believer, otherwise they are lost, since no further atonement can be supposed while future sin is certain to be committed. Blessed be his name, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you cannot be freed through the law of Moses, Acts 13, verse 39. Salvation by grace is eternal salvation. Sinners must commit their souls to the keeping of Christ for all eternity. How else are they saved? Sadly, according to the teaching of some, believers are only saved in part. To complete their salvation, they must depend upon their own future endeavors. Is this a gospel? No. Genuine faith trusts a whole Christ for the whole of salvation. Is it any wonder that many converts fall away when in fact they were never taught to exercise faith in Jesus for eternal salvation, but only for temporary conversion? A faulty presentation of Christ brings about a faulty faith. When this language is in its own weakness, who is to blame? According to their faith, so it is unto them. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Matthew 9 verse 29 Both the preacher and the possessor of a partial faith must bear the blame of the failure when their poor mutilated trust breaks down. I earnestly maintain this point because a semi-legal way of believing is so common and so wrong. We must urge the trembling sinner to trust completely and only upon the Lord Jesus forever, or we will have him implying that he is to begin in the spirit and be made perfect by the flesh. In other words, he will confidently walk by faith as it relates to the past, but then as to the future, he will trust his own works. The faulty faith will be fatal. True faith in Jesus receives eternal life and sees perfect salvation in him, whose one sacrifice has sanctified the people of God once for all, for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Romans 6 verse 10 The sense of being saved, completely saved, in Christ Jesus is not, some suppose, a source of fleshly security, any enemy of holy zeal, it is, in fact, a direct opposite. Delivered from the fear which makes the salvation of self a more immediate object than salvation from self, and inspired by holy gratitude to its Redeemer, the regenerated man becomes capable of moral goodness and is filled with an enthusiasm for God's glory. While trembling under a sense of insecurity, a man gives his foremost thoughts to his own interests. But when planted firmly on the rock of ages, he possesses time and heart to voice a new song which the Lord has put into his mouth, then his moral salvation is complete, for self is no longer the Lord of his being. Don't rest or feel content that the job is done until you see clear evidence in your converts of a simple, sincere, and decided faith in the Lord Jesus. Real Repentance of Sin Along with undivided faith in Jesus Christ, there must also be real repentance of sin. Repentance is an old-fashioned word, not much used by modern revivalists. Oh, said a minister to me one day, it only means a change of mind. This was thought to be a profound observation. Only a change of mind? But what a change! True repentance is a change of mind with regard to everything. Instead of saying it's only a change of mind, it seems more truthful to say it is a great and deep change, even a change of the mind itself. But whatever the literal Greek word may mean, repentance is no triviality. You won't find a better definition of it than the one given in the children's hymn. Repentance is to leave... The sins we loved before, and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. True conversion is joined by a sense of sin in all men, which we talked about under the topic of conviction. This sense of sin is also accompanied by a sorrow for sin, or holy grief, for having committed it, and a hatred of sin, which proves its dominion is ended. This includes a practical turning from sin which shows the life within the soul is direct in the life on the outside. True belief and true repentance are twins. It would be futile to attempt to say which is born first. All the spokes of a will move at once when the will moves, and so all the graces are put into action when regeneration is produced by the Holy Spirit. However, there must be repentance. No sinner looks to the Savior with a dry eye. Or a hard heart. Therefore, aim at heartbreaking, at bringing home condemnation to the conscience and weaning the mind from sin. Don't be content until the whole mind is deeply and vitally changed in regard to sin. Real change of life. Another proof of winning a soul for Christ is in a real change of life. If a man doesn't live differently, than how he did before, both at home and beyond the walls of his house. His repentance needs to be repented of, because his conversion is a fabrication. More than actions and language must change, for the spirit and temper must be changed. But, someone says, grace is often grafted on a seedling used as a stock. I know it is, but what's the fruit of the grafting? The fruit will be like the graft and not take on the nature of the original stem. Another argues, But I have an awful temper. All of a sudden it overcomes me. My fit of anger is soon over, and I feel a great sorrow of heart. Though I can't control myself, I am quite sure I am a Christian. Not so fast, my friend, for I am quite assured the other way. What's the use of your soon cooling hot temper? If in the two or three moments it boils over, you scald all around you. If a man stabs me in a fury, it won't heal my wound to see him grieve over his madness. A hasty temper must be conquered. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evil doers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Psalm 37 verses 8 and 9. The whole man must be renewed, or conversion will be questionable. It's all winners. We're not to hold up a modified standard of holiness before our people and say, you'll be all right if you reach that standard. Scripture says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. 1 John 3 verse 8 Remaining under the power of any known sin is a mark of our being the servants of sin. For you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Romans 6 verse 16 The boasts of a man who harbors the love of any transgression are ineffectual. He may feel what he likes and believe what he likes, but malignant bitterness is still in him. He is still in the bonds of iniquity, while a single sin rules his heart and life. True regeneration implants a hatred of all evil. For even a single sin is delighted in The witness of the evidence is fatal to hope, founded in truth. A man doesn't need to take a dozen poisons to destroy his life. One is quite sufficient. Harmony must exist between the life and the profession. A Christian professes to renounce sin. If he doesn't do so, his very name is a deception. A drunken man came up to Roland Hill one day and said, I'm one of your converts, Mr. Hill. I suppose you are the shrewd and sensible preacher replied, but you are not one of the Lord's or you wouldn't be drunk. We must practically test all our work in this way. In converts, we must also see true prayer, which is a vital breath of godliness. If there is no prayer, you may be quite sure the soul is dead. I am not saying we are to urge men to pray as a word of the great gospel duty. In a one-set way of salvation, our chief message is belief in the Lord Jesus, Acts 16, verses 30 and 31. It's easy to place a wrong emphasis on prayer and make it out to be a kind of work, but which men are to live? I trust you will most carefully avoid doing this. Faith is a great gospel grace, but we must not forget the true faith, always praise. When a man professes faith in the Lord Jesus and doesn't cry to the Lord daily, we dare not believe in his faith or conversion. The Holy Spirit's evidence by which he convinced Ananias of Paul's conversion was not. Behold, he talks loudly of his joys and feelings, but he is praying. Acts 9 verse 11 And that prayer was earnest, heartbroken confession and supplication. Oh, to see the sure evidence in all who profess to be our converts. Willingness to obey the Lord. There must also be a willingness to obey the Lord in all of its commandments. It's a shameful thing for a man to agree to discipleship and then refuse to learn his Lord's will regarding certain points or even dare to spurn obedience when that will is known. How can a man be a disciple of Christ when he openly lives in disobedience to him? If the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows his Lord's will, but doesn't intend to heed his will, you are not to pamper his impertinence. Instead, it's your responsibility to assure him that he is not saved. Didn't the Lord say, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me? Matthew 10, verse 38. Mistakes as to what the Lord's will may be and are to be corrected, but anything like willful disobedience is serious, and to tolerate it would be betrayal to him who sent us. Jesus must be received as king as well as priest. Where there is any hesitancy about this, the foundation of godliness is not yet laid. Faith must obey her Maker's will, as well as trust His grace. A pardoning God is jealous still for His own holiness. You see, to this extent, the signs which prove a soul is one are by no means insignificant. And a work to be done, before those signs can exist, isn't to be taken lightly. A soul winner can do nothing without God. He must throw himself on the invisible, or be a stock, To the devil, for the devil regards all who think they can subdue human nature with mere words and arguments, with complete disdain. To all who hope to succeed in such an effort by their own strength, we refer to the words of the Lord Job. Can you draw a leviathan with a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord, can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you, or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? And will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears. Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low, even in the sight of him? Job 41, verses 1 to 9. Dependence upon God is our strength and our joy. In that dependence let us go forth and seek to win souls for him. In the course of our ministry, we will meet with many failures in this manner of soul-winning. In the course of my ministry, I thought I caught numerous birds and even managed to put salt on their tails, only to see them fly off after all. One man, I will call him Tom Careless, was a terror of the village in which he lived. Several incendiary fires in the region were attributed to him by most people. Sometimes he'd be drunk for two or three weeks at a spell, and during those times he raved and raged like a madman. That man came to hear me. I'll never forget the commotion stirred to the little chapel when he walked in. He sat there and fell in love with me. I think that was the only conversion he experienced, but he professed to be converted. He had apparently been the subject of genuine repentance, Outwardly, he became quite a changed man. He gave up drinking and swearing, and in many respects was an exemplary individual. I recall seeing him tugging a barge with perhaps a hundred people on board. He was drawing them to a place where I was going to preach. He gloried in the work, singing as gladly and happily as any one of them. If anybody spoke a word against the Lord or a servant— didn't hesitate a moment to knock him down. Before I left the district, I feared there was no real work of grace in him. He was a wild sort of a man. I'd even heard that he had taken a bird, plucked it and ate it raw in the field. This isn't the act of a Christian man displaying decent behavior, or someone with a good reputation. After I left the neighborhood I asked about him. Unfortunately, I heard nothing good. The spirit that kept him outwardly right was gone, and he became worse than ever. If that was possible, he certainly wasn't any better, and he was unreachable by any means. The point is that the work of mine didn't stand the test of fire. You see, after the person who had influence over the man, me, was gone, he couldn't bear up against even ordinary temptation— when you move from the village or town where you've been preaching, it's very likely that some who appear to run well will go back to their old ways. They have a fondness for you, and your words have a kind of mesmerizing influence over them. But when you're gone, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Second Peter 2, verse 22 Don't be in a hurry to count these supposed converts. Don't take them into the church too soon, and don't be too proud of their enthusiasm if it isn't accompanied with some degree of softening and tenderness to show that the Holy Spirit has really been at work within them. I remember another case of quite a different sort. This person I will call Miss Mary Shallow, for she was a young lady never blessed with much sense. She lived in the same house as several Christian young ladies and she professed to be converted. When I talked with her, she had all the answers one could wish for. I even thought of recommending her to the church, but it was determined best to give her a little trial time first. After a while, she left the company of those Christian ladies where she had lived and went to a place where she had no such fellowship to help her. I never heard anything more of her except that she spent all her time thinking about her outward appearance, dressing as smartly as she could, and pursuing opportunities to be with fine society. She is the type of those who lack mental furniture, like knowledge or ideas. It's a grace of God doesn't take possession of the empty space they very soon go back into the world. I have also known several like a young man who we'll all call Charlie, clever, uncommonly clever fellows at anything and everything, including faking religion. They prayed very fluently, tried to preach, and did it very well. Whatever they did, they did it nonchalantly, and it came easy to them. Don't be in a hurry to take such people into the church. They haven't known humiliation on account of sin, they haven't experienced brokenness of heart nor do they have a sense of divine grace. They shout, all is perfect and bright, and away they go. You'll find that they never repay you for your labor and trouble. These clever sorts are also able to use the language as God's people as well as the best of his saints. They even talk about their doubts and fears and can stir up a deep emotional experience in five minutes. However, they are a little too clever. And likely to do much harm when they get into the church. So be diligent and keep them out if you possibly can. I remember another man who was very pious in his talk. I will call him John Fair Speech. Oh, how craftily he could act a hypocrite! He'd get among our young men and lead them into all manner of sin and iniquity, and yet he would come to see me and hold half an hour's spiritual conversation. A detestable rogue living in open sin at the very time he sought to come to the Lord's table, join our societies, and was anxious to take a leading role in every good work. Keep your eyes open for changes. This crafty sort will come to you with money in their hands, like Peter's fish, with the silver in his mouth, and they will appear to be so helpful in the work. They speak softly and are such perfect gentleman. Yes, I believe Judas was a man exactly of this kind. Very clever at deceiving those around him. We must pay attention that we don't get any of these into the church, if there's any way we can keep them out. At the close of a service, you may say to yourself, here's a splendid haul of fish. Wait a bit. Remember our Savior's words. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind, Matthew 13, verse 47. Don't number your fish before they are broiled, nor count your converts before you have tested and tried them. This process may make your work somewhat slow, but it will be sure. Do your work steadily and well so that those who come after you won't have to say it was far more trouble to them to clear the church of those who ought never to have been admitted than it was for you to admit them. If God enables you to build 3,000 bricks into a spiritual temple in one day, you may do it, but Peter has been the only bricklayer who has accomplished that feat up to the present. Don't go and paint a wooden wall to make it look like solid stone but instead let all your building be real, substantial, and true, for only this kind of work is worth doing. Let all your building for God be like that of the Apostle Paul. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than that one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved. Yet soeth through fire. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 to 15